In my role as a pastor, I am used to hearing my own voice when it's time to pray, whether that be here in public worship or at a meal or before a meeting begins or privately with one of you. I love that part of my job because prayer is one of the most personal and vulnerable things that human beings can do with one another. When we ask someone to pray for us, we are bearing some part of our souls to them that not everyone gets to see. And we are entrusting them to hold that gently before God. Some prayers get spoken aloud, and everyone gets to hear them, but many more are so intensely personal that they are held in the strictest confidence. And I guess that's why this passage in our gospel today gets to me so powerfully. We are given this insight into Jesus' personal prayer life. Not when he was leading a group of people in worship or doing some sort of public healing, but more like those times when he went off by himself, away from the people. And it was just him and his father. Jesus needed that time, the duration of which the Bible simply describes as a while to recharge to remember who he was and why God had called him to this ministry. And for good reason, he usually needed that time to be private. But not this time. Somehow, by the mystery of the Holy Spirit, we are let in and get to hear what's really on his heart. And that's the other part of this passage that I find so moving. I get to hear Jesus praying for me. You get to hear him praying for you too, and for us as a family. But there is something sort of healing and nourishing for me to be on the receiving end of prayer. I always cherish it, whether it's my mother saying grace before dinner when I come home to visit, or when I ask our Sunday school children what they want to pray for and I'm amazed at the depth of what comes from their little mouths, or even sometimes in this role. One of my favorite parts of the Maundy Thursday liturgy is that intensely powerful ritual of individual absolution where I get to address each one of you by name and assure you that you are loved and forgiven. This year, Barbara was assisting at that service, and after I had absolved her, she said, and who will speak this blessing to you? At which point I bowed my head, and she prayed for me, and I so desperately needed that that I nearly wept. And what made it so powerful, what makes any prayer powerful, was not the words that were spoken in particular, but that the words were accompanied by something else. Genuine care for me, care that in so many ways is lived out in action, in concrete decisions, even when it means giving something up 
such as giving me the gift of some time to refresh and renew. I've been thinking a lot about the prayers that have been ascending to Almighty God this week. Prayers that are accompanied by a different kind of weeping and probably also the gnashing of teeth, but which I am not able to hear. The prayers from parents, prayers from teachers, prayers from little boys and girls crouched under a classroom table with a blanket over it. Those prayers feel authentic to me. They feel real, as gut-wrenching as they are. What else can we do when we are afraid, when we are angry, when we are absolutely paralyzed by grief, but to turn our lives over to God? But there are also the prayers and the thoughts from those who have the power to do something, who show up on cue whenever this happens, but who then go on to do absolutely, literally, shamefully nothing. Those prayers feel to me like a noisy gong or a clashing cymbal. And right now, those prayers make me mad. Because they are not accompanied by anything. Not courage, not risk, not integrity, not leadership, certainly not action. They are as hollow as the barrel of a shotgun. And they are just about as useful in protecting our babies. I wonder... Would those who say such prayers be able to say them in the presence of a mother or father who lost their child this week? Would they be able to say them to the teacher they want to arm with a deadly weapon but don't even trust to choose library books? Would they truly say them at all to Almighty God? I don't know what Jesus is saying to his father this morning as he intercedes for us and for the salvation of the whole world. But I don't think he's asking, God, why did you let this happen? Not anymore. Rather, I suspect he's asking, God, why do they let this happen? Because what's happening, beloved, is not a mystery. It's not an act of nature like a hurricane or a volcano erupting. It's not some freak accident that no one can predict or mitigate. It's just that we have decided to live in a world where it would be nice if things like school shootings didn't happen, but not if it means we have to change our relationship with guns, our love of guns, our idolatry of guns. An idol is something we choose time and time again over the actual moral good. It's the thing in which we place our trust, the thing that trumps everything else, the thing from which no amount of reason can ever persuade us. To not have idols is the first commandment. And of that commandment, I'm afraid, we are in a state of disobedience. There are more guns than people in the United States, and only 30% of the population owns one. It is easier for a teenager to buy an AR-15 than a beer or a pack of cigarettes. 
with no training, no license, no liability insurance, no parental consent, no mental health consultation, or really anything at all. The same politicians who say this is a mental health problem routinely cut funding for mental health. It's enough to make your head spin. An article I read this week said it's not that Americans are numb or desensitized to gun violence, it's that they're cynical. They are so conditioned to expect that lawmakers will do nothing, just as they have been doing nothing since Parkland four years ago, Sandy Hook ten years ago, Columbine twenty years ago, and the hundreds of mass shootings in between. At some point, do our prayers sound like screeching on a chalkboard in the divine ears? In Judaism, there is a concept called bracha levatla, and it basically means that if you pray for something and then fail to do the requisite action that follows, like saying a blessing over bread and then not eating it, it is said to be the equivalent of taking God's name in vain. That doesn't mean we shouldn't pray, not at all. It just means that we shouldn't pray if we have no intention of participating in the answer to that prayer. If we pray for peace while waging war, if we pray for an end to hunger and homelessness while railing against programs that help the poor, if we pray for an end to gun violence while prioritizing the Second Amendment over the First Commandment, are we not taking God's name in vain? Beloved, we worship a Savior whose life ended in violence but who refused to return violence in kind. In all four of the passion narratives, when Peter thinks he's doing a good thing by cutting off the ear of that soldier in the mob, Jesus rebukes him saying, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Jesus chooses the way of love instead. He allows no one to be sacrificed but himself. He prays for us, and then he puts his life behind it. And that prayer, God vindicates on the third day, raising him up and ushering in a new world where a broken and divided humanity is reconciled. When Jesus prays for the unity of his people, as we hear him doing today, he doesn't just mean in some kind of institutional church unity, like the various denominations of Christianity coming back together. Oh, that would certainly be a powerful witness. By praying that we are one, as he and the Father are one, by praying that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, he is asking that we see each other as related human beings, as fellow siblings, as sharing the same body, members of one another. When one person suffers, we all suffer together. When one person rejoices, we all rejoice together. The stronger members are charged with caring for the weaker members. Individual rights are informed by the common good. And at the center of it all is love the self-giving love with which Jesus loves us. I guess at the end of the day, it's up to us to decide if Jesus' prayer is one we can say amen to. Because an amen is never neutral. 
It asks something of God, but it also asks something of us. The good news is that God will accomplish God's good and gracious will with or without us. The kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven. Trespasses will be forgiven. And one day we will all be seated at the same table, having washed our robes and passed through the gates of that eternal city. In the end, death will be defeated by Jesus' victory alone. But eternal life doesn't have to wait until then. It doesn't have to wait until we die. We can share in that abundant life now. We can work towards that world now. We can live as if the kingdom is now, as Jesus did, and by so living, be a witness to his risen life. We can pray and then trust that the one who raised Jesus from the dead will raise us with him and give us the grace to be the answer that we seek. And we can know that Jesus is praying for us. He never ceases to pray for us, to be our mediator. There is comfort in that, to know that even when we do not have the words, when our words ring hollow, there is one who holds us in all our brokenness before the throne saying, have mercy, please have mercy. Into his arms, we place the victims of this and every mass shooting, every senseless act of violence, every failure of nerve by grown-ups to do what is right. We did not protect them, but he will hold them safe forever. The risen and ascended one will shelter them where no one can harm them, in the place where all our swords have been beaten into plowshares, our spears into pruning hooks, and our guns into gravel to pave the way for the kingdom come. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.